This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Jack Losh. He's going to be speaking about the largely underreported war in the Central African Republic, a small country in the centre of Africa. There's not that much reporting on the place, but there's been a very brutal war that has reignited recently. The war crimes carried out are absolutely horrific. Jack's going to explain to us how this all happened. Remember, everything we do here is completely independent, 100% grassroots conflict journalism. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popular front. There's been this kind of resurgence of fighting in the CAR. Maybe you can just go into that a bit. What is happening? And, you know, maybe maybe just kind of tell us about how this is actually part of a kind of long ongoing war. Because I don't think a lot of people realise that there has even been a conflict there in recent years. That's right. And I think a lot of people wouldn't even realise that the country, Central African Republic, exists. When I first started reporting on this place a few years ago, I'd tell people that I'm going to the Central African Republic. And they'd go, oh, right, Congo. You're like, no, Central African Republic. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 Congo, Central Africa. And you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> sure. So, I mean, this, it, it really has been the periphery of the periphery uh, for, for so long. But, but it is a country, and it's a country of four million people. And it's increasingly drawing in other countries as well and gaining, this conflict is gaining a bit of an international flavour. Um, first things first, where is this place? As, as the name suggests, it's smack bang in the heart of the continent and it's in a bad neighbourhood. You've got Chad, Sudan uh, to the north, obviously have their own security problems. Uh, you've got DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo to the south and all the madness there. Uh, south Sudan to the east uh, and Cameroon to the west. Uh, so a lot of regional instability there, which feeds both into CAR's own conflict and CAR's conflict feeds into that regional insecurity as well. This is one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world. If you look at every single um, indicator of uh, development on the UN, CAR consistently comes at the bottom or very, very close to the bottom. It's either that or Niger in terms of uh, life expectancy, child mortality, access to healthcare, access to education. Uh, it, is, it is in a woeful, dire situation. Uh, and this in its own way has, has fed into the instability and sense of marginalization among the population. The former French colony, uh, small, uh, it's landlocked and it's been blighted by a succession of vicious conflicts uh, and instability since gaining independence from Paris in 1960. Before we go into all the deep history of how we got to where we are today, the the latest crisis um, reared its head uh, in December. Uh, it was in the run-up to presidential elections on Boxing Day. Uh, despite all this instability, there, there had been a, a, an unrest the country had achieved a modicum of stability in recent months, um, thanks to some reform of the uh, the armed forces, 
thanks to a 14,000 strong uh, UN peacekeeping mission in the country. Uh, and there was some hope that this presidential elections and people getting the right to vote could uh, help pave the way to more stability and more reconciliation and more justice. There also were concerns that as political campaigning reached a crescendo and the various opposition factions started jostling for power, that actually, you know, this could potentially be throwing a match into this tinderbox that is Central African Republic. Uh, and, and sadly, the latter was the case. Um, a week or two before the elections, about mid-December, um, some of the most powerful armed groups in the country who, who are scattered across the country and control, I mean, numbers are, uh, are debated, but about two thirds of the country, uh, they banded together, some of them supposedly sworn enemies, at least on paper, banded together and launched this new uprising. Uh, since then, they've been, uh, well, after that, they started disrupting the election. Um, they stopped voting happening in about 40% of electoral districts. Um, and since then, the uh, conflict and the crisis has escalated. Uh, we've had armed groups knocking on the door of the capital, um, seizing other provincial towns before being forced out uh, and forcing over 200,000 people from their homes on top of a displacement crisis that has seen over 1.2 million people displaced both into neighbouring countries and internally within CAR. And the problem is this escalation doesn't really show any sign of abating yet. And the impact on the civilian population is massive. Right. Now, this conflict has roots further back, right? I remember in, I don't know, what was it like, maybe 2016, I think there was there was serious clashes when the war kind of started. Maybe take us back and explain where this all came from. So I think to answer that, there's there's kind of two parts. There's going back to the, the main civil war that erupted some years ago, uh, which paved the way for this latest bout of unrest. And then it's a case of going back even further to the scramble for Africa, which set in motion the conditions for that civil war and today's unrest. So what we had in 2012-2013, that uh, a group called the Selica were formed. And this was basically the Selica. I mean, it's actually the local Sango word for coalition. And the Selica group was a coalition of these mainly Muslim rebel groups up in the north, up in the northeast, uh, historically very um, under-resourced, marginalised part of the country, deep socio-economic problems there, I mean, entrenched poverty. They banded together into this coalition, launched an offensive across the country, started taking towns, uh, committing a lot of atrocities along the way. Uh, and then eventually in 2013, they they reached the capital um and this unleashed waves of devastating sectarian violence so first of all these selica rebels they they ousted the president president bozize who himself had seized power in a coup 10 years earlier but we'll get onto that later uh he fled the country and uh groups of rebels just committing awful war crimes and crimes against humanity against the civilian population their rule 
for the coming months was so brutal that they prompted these self-defense militias drawn from mainly Christian and animist communities, but also communities loyal to the former president, Bozizi, uh, to rise up and form these militant groups known as anti-Balaka, armed with anything that they could get their hands on. So it might be a hunting rifle, might be an AK-47 if they're lucky, or machetes. What, what does uh, anti-Balaka actually mean? Like anti-what? What's the Balaka? Yeah, well, no one really knows. There's, there's a couple of theories. Um, one of them is that Balaka in one of the local languages uh, means machete, so they were the anti-machetes fighting against the main weapon that was inflicting harm on their communities. Uh, the other theory, which is quite interesting, is that, so anti is A-N-T-I, and the second word is balaka, B-A-L-A-K-A. Thinking is that is actually a bastardization of the French bal-a-ka, as in bal-bullet, a-ka, AK, AK-47. So they were the they were the anti-AK-47 bullet crew, if you will, because part of their um, part of their dark juju that they had was that if they take enough drugs like tramadol and this and that and do their rituals, that they would then become impervious to the bullets that the rebels were firing on them. Hence, they became anti-AK-47 bullets, anti-Balaka. No one really knows. These are the theories behind behind that term. Anyway, they started rising up, and not only were they fighting back against the rebels, but they were fighting back against anyone who was perceived to be an ally of the rebels, and that meant Muslim civilian communities, and just committed the most awful reprisals against them. This led to the whole-scale displacement of Muslim civilians far away from the capital, up into the north, and essentially partitioning the country, uh, in broad terms, Christian to the south, uh, southwest, uh, Muslims fleeing up to the north, uh, northeast. The deployment of international troops followed. Uh, the French launched a military inter intervention uh, called Sangaris. Uh, following that, UN peacekeepers came. Uh, their mission is called Banuska. Um, but, you know, for the next year or two, Scar just spiralled into this chaotic, anarchic bloodshed in which thousands died. Um, eventually some peace was found uh, in late 2015 when they had their first presidential elections um, and that saw President Tuadira uh, come to power. Um, this appeared to be quelling the chaos which had displaced half a million and left thousands shot, injured or killed. Um, for the next year's there was some stability, occasional outbreaks, um, occasional serious ruptures of violence that continued to displace people, continued to kill people. Uh, it was very up and down. A big moment happened in February 2019 when a major new peace deal was signed between Carr's government on the one hand and 14 other rebel groups. It was the eighth peace deal in six years. So while people were hopeful, they were also aware how easily these peace deals could disintegrate. Um, following that peace deal in 2019, there did appear to be this gradual building towards stability. Not to say that there weren't controversies along the way. For example, at one point, Carr's government appeared to hand some backroom amnesties to rebel commanders 
giving them official positions as a way of bringing them into the fold of government. Human rights groups are very critical of this because these guys are war criminals and it appeared to be snubbing efforts at tackling the impunity that has caused so many problems, the lack of accountability that has um, fueled the actions of these war criminals, thinking they can get away with it scot-free, so they do it again. Um, there were some serious problems along the way. For example, in, uh, when was it? It was around May uh, 2019, uh, one of the rebel splinter groups um, uh, called 3R massacred dozens of villages in a horrific reprisal attack, which just showed how fragile this new peace was. Anyway, stability was building, apart from these occasional outbreaks of violence, leading to these presidential elections in 2020, um, late last month, and that's when it all fell apart. And this, uh, these, these armed groups, supposedly some of them sworn, sworn enemies, banded together, formed this group called the CPC, the, um, the Coalition of Patriots for Change. And uh, that's how we're in the mess we are now. But as I mentioned earlier, there, there, is, a, there is a much longer story to this. The, this. the Civil War in 2013 didn't come out of a vacuum. And it had been that the, the tinder for that had been stacked over many, many decades over the last century since the scramble for Africa. So if you go back to the 19th century, um, different European colonial powers carving out different parts of the continent for their rule, uh, for economic and political gain, um, the French arrived in Central African Republic. It wasn't called, called that then, it was called Ubangi Shari. And they arrived in what is modern day car on the Ubangi River in the 1880s, seeking to lay claim to the continent's heart. It's Heart was rich in minerals and rubber, ivory, all the rest of it. They established this remote outpost in Bangui from where shipments of ivory, of rubber, of captured people as well could flow. This was at a time, by the way, when France had already abolished the slave trade in its Caribbean colonies, but attitude, attitudes warped by it could still, uh, could still continue. Um, the problem was this place was so far from uh, the oceans and infrastructure that it proved almost impossible to make any money here. Um, Imperial Paris followed the business model lead of King Leopold's Congo Free State to the south, uh, that famous bastion of human rights where um, slaves would get their arms chopped off. Um, so what Paris did was dole out concessions uh, to private companies who would then strip the land of its assets and force locals to work in atrocious conditions. One of the reasons behind this was it was so hard to make any money in this uh, new territory that the only way you could turn any profit was essentially enslaving the local population. Um, the result of this was in about 50 years of France's arrival in this territory, around half of the territory's brutalized population were killed by a combination of exploitation, violence, starvation, and disease. This sets the tone for the next half century to come after years of brutal uh, colonization. Um, now, Carr finally gained independence in 1960, but the joy of that 
soon dissipated as the country slid into more and more dysfunction and a whole series of mutinies, unrest, repressive dictatorships followed. Um, turned into a one-party state um, in 1966 uh, when the former army chief uh, Jean Bedel Bacassa, uh, a megalomaniac... He was a cannibal as well, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Never been proven, but but alleged cannibal. The so so the word the the story goes that he would kill his political opponents, store their body parts at his palace, and eat them. But yeah, never proved, but certainly grisly. Um, yeah, he staged just to give you an idea of uh, the madness of his reign. He um, he staged a ludicrously extravagant coronation. I think he used a whole year's worth of French aid to pay for it as they were flying in Rolls Royces and hundreds of white ponies. Total, total madness. I just remember this image where he's kind of dressed up as the Queen of England or something, right? He had a kind of obsession with the Queen, I read, or something? Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. He, he was obsessed by Napoleon. So ah. I think he... Did he fly in um, Napoleon's throne? or built a replica of it. But yeah, if, if you look at the images from that coronation, he's got this huge uh, animal skin robe, um, dramatic throne with eagles coming out of it. Lots of white horses were flown in there. I mean, real kind of dictatorship megalomania on, <laughs> on a level we don't see so much anymore. Um, anyway, he eventually was ousted by the, by the French, the same people who had installed him years earlier. More coups followed, often with the help of a guiding French hand. Things began to um, turn in the early 90s uh, when uh, Patasse was sworn in as president in 1993. This was the first thing that Carr had known to a democratically elected leader. This didn't last long, though, and the country would soon backslide with more mutinies, civil strikes and riots. Uh, 2003 was a significant year for Carr, um, 10 years after Patasse was sworn in. That's when his former army chief, Francois Pazizé, I mentioned earlier, uh, launched a coup and seized power. Now, for the next 10 years, uh, Bacassa's rule really paved the way for the uh, unrest, uh, for the civil war broke out in 2013. There was this long-running Central African Bush War, was the name of it, and that kind of broke out in 2003, 2004, where you had these insurgencies of predominantly Muslim groups up in the north. His way that he sought to extinguish these insurgencies was identifying the leader, uh, bestowing him with some official position in government, which would allow that rebel leader to make a lot of money through corruption schemes, a, gr a great way to spin a profit. And that would be his way of extinguishing that particular insurgency. But the problem with that, it was never really addressing the underlying socio-economic roots of these insurgencies. Instead, it was basically rewarding rebels for taking out arms, which provides further incentive future rebels to do the same thing. This all came to a head in late 2012 when that Celica coalition of rebels, backed by mercenaries, backed by foreign fighters, united into this one unruly coalition known as the Celica, attacked the capital, 
and forced Bazize to flee. There's one final twist to all of this. That was not the last time that we heard from Francois Bazize. For the last eight years, seven, eight years, he'd been living in exile, sanctioned by the UN, supposedly for, uh, for war crimes, for supporting anti-Balika atrocities against the Muslim communities. He returned late in 2019 to Qatar. Um, he didn't really say why, but the presumption was that he was going to run in the elections that we've just had um, about a year on after he arrived. Lo and behold, a few months later, he announced his candidacy. And then just a few weeks before the newer re rebellion erupted in 2020, um, he was barred actually from running as a presidential candidate because uh, I think the, the court described his lack of morality. It basically meant he was a suspected war criminal and sanctioned by the UN. And it's at this moment he disappeared. And a few days later, this new coalition of rebels uh, banded together, started attacking countries nationwide. And very soon after that, the Qatar government and the UN accused Bazize of having a guiding hand in this rebellion. Why is this such a twist? Well, it means that the same rebels that ousted him in 2013 are now apparently his allies in this latest rebellion, which just goes to show the topsy-turvy, unpredictable nature of Central African Republic's unrest. Yeah, that is quite the ride. Um, I know you've you've explained a lot there, but I still can't quite wrap my head around what what are they currently fighting for right now? Is it just a situation where there are so many internal disputes and so much fighting that there's a lot of revenge attacks going on, or is there an actual goal to any of these groups? Because I'm I'm still trying to you know wrap my head around what the what the reignited war is is you know why is it taking place? It's kind of a hard one to answer. I mean, it was in a way. Carr's first civil war in 2013 was, the explanations for it were simplistic, but it was easy to wrap your head around it. It was a Muslim group of rebels fighting against Christian communities. So it was often seen as a war in religious terms. But actually that was really simplistic. And quickly that rebel coalition fragmented into all these different splinter groups who were kind of more drawn along eth ethnic lines. But actually, it wasn't a war about ethnicity either, because it was a war about getting control of all the diamond and gold reserves in the country or um, seizing territory so you can extort locals for money and charge illegal taxes at checkpoints. Or one of the cash cows, literally, is every year you have these migration routes of uh, cattle led by nomads going across the, across the country. And whoever controls those migration routes and make a lot of money by charging a tax on each head of cattle, huge sums. So, you know, the first war was this kind of mix of religion and ethnicity, but actually it was just more about money and power. This one doesn't really have those elements. We've seen anti-Balika groups, the quote-unquote Christians, joining forces with former Selika groups, the quote-unquote Muslims. So, you know, clearly, religion isn't a unifying factor here at all. Um, different rebel groups have come together from different ethnicity groups. So again, ethnicity isn't a unifying factor here. And it's clear that they don't really enjoy any popular support from the, uh, from the civilian population. Um, 
all of whom are being brutalized by the rebels, regardless of their ethnic or religious affiliation. Um, so why have they banded together and launched this rebellion? The, 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 the way to see this is that rebellions in Kaar have a long history of being used as a tool. And it's a tool to extract concessions from the government uh, and to secure lucrative official positions. So, you know, I get my militia together, we raise arms. If we tack enough towns and get noticed and taken seriously, uh, the way that I'll be persuaded to, to lay down my arms is that you name me as your special advisor in the capital, which is a completely token position. And by the way, I'm never going to visit the capital. But through that position, I'll be getting some kind of lucrative government salary. And now I'm happy. I've laid down my arms. You're not getting attacked. And I've made quite a lot of money in the process. So really, it just kind of comes back to power and greed. Yeah, it sounds like they're creating war almost to, to just build their own, you know, internal economy for whichever group they're in. Exactly. It's just it's just a way of building up your fiefdoms, applying pressure, applying that leverage and getting some payout at the end of it. Yeah, that's grim. Um, maybe give us an idea of how brutal this war is. I was reading this morning that something like 20,000 people have been murdered and displaced and whatever just in one small area maybe just give us an idea of the level of fighting the, the the bar is set so low in this country um for respect for human rights um that really the most horrific atrocities have happened and certainly the time that i've spent there in the past visiting displacement camps uh speaking to civilians getting their testimonies um the level of extreme violence that these people young and old very young in some cases are subjected to is harrowing um rape as a weapon of war is is used systematically um i've interviewed uh teenage girls who were raped um as young as 11 or 12 um but there's been plenty of cases when much younger children and babies have been subjected to that kind of vile abuse um there's there's an uncontrolled arms trade in the country with weapons flooding over the border from Darfur in Sudan, uh, from Chad. Um, plenty of people who have been hacked to death by machetes. Uh, and it's, it's indiscriminate. What we've seen in the last few weeks since this new rebellion is more than 200,000 people displaced, roughly half into surrounding countries, uh, the other half internally. Just this morning, I saw the Red Cross put out an alert saying that 100,000 IDPs, sorry, it wasn't the Red Cross, it was the Norwegian um, NRC, Norwegian Refugee Commission, saying that 100,000 uh, internally displaced people standing on a knife edge as aid lifelines are collapsing and violence is widespread across the country. One of the one of the double whammies from this rebellion is that not only has it caused people to be displaced into the bush and into other communities overseas, communities in Congo who are dirt poor in the first place and don't have the capacity to absorb any more people in need. On top of that, you know, these people are living out in the open, don't have access to clean water, don't have access to clean food. They're extremely poor in the beginning and now their conditions have just got a lot worse. The problem is, the unrest is 
so serious that the humanitarian aid groups aren't able to reach these people in their darkest hour of need. Um, even in the capital, Bangui, which has long been this kind of um, island of stability, um, they're, they're really feeling the pinch from this war now because the main road connecting Cameroon into Bangui has um, basically essentially been blocked by the rebels. It's too unsafe for lorry drivers to transport goods from neighbouring Cameroon into Bangui. Uh, these are both A trucks and just kind of, you know, normal goods trucks. So we're seeing huge price increases in the capital, uh, some basic food goods uh, tripling in price. Um, so all over the country, this impact is being felt acutely. Uh, last week, another figure came out saying that fighting in the country has halted more than 60% of humanitarian operations by aid groups. This is really serious because this is a country where almost all healthcare, education and food assistance outside the capital are provided by the NGOs. The government doesn't have a presence in most of the country. Most of the country is run by these armed groups who obviously aren't providing any kind of social services for the population they rule over. So it's up to these non-profits, these humanitarian groups in the UN to, to provide all the public services that we take for granted over here. But now the unrest is stopping those services from being given. So it's a massive humanitarian challenge. Uh, and it, it, was, it was one of the worst humanitarian crises before this latest unrest began. And now it's just deepening and deepening. If the violence continues, and it's, it's not really showing any signs of abating, we're just going to see this crisis deteriorating into, a more, in, in, into an emergency and the needs of the population rising more and more, while at the same time, the, the capacity and the reach of the aid organisations dropping. Right, and why this, this is like a really brutal situation. And the only people I really see speaking about it here and there is like yourself and a few others. Um, why isn't this, you know, why, why don't you think more attention is put on this? I think there's a few reasons for this. Um, I think it might, it might be different if you were French. You know, this is a French colony. Uh, it was a former French colony. Uh, and certainly most of the journalists in the country at the moment are French and it tends to get more covered in Francophone countries. But even even then, it's kind of neglected, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's our jobs, you know. Whether it's whether it's a French colony, a British colony, whatever. As a journalist, you know, I or just with the media, you would expect something this brutal and violent to just be out there a little bit more. I mean, I don't have the answer. I've been wondering for years why these kind of things go under the carpet. But I don't know. As someone who's been there, just wondering if you had any kind of insight. Yeah, I mean, I think I think for many people, it's just another African basket case. You know, I think over so many decades, you know, people over here, if if they're even paying attention in the first place, have heard so much about civil wars in Africa without even knowing what country it is. There is that kind of, you know, that kind of fatigue, isn't there? Crisis fatigue. The problem with Central African Republic, this has been going on for so long. You know, the roots of this kind of go back. The first civil war was getting on for 10 years ago and then the Central African Bush year was ten, uh, Bush war was 10 years before that and then way more unrest before that. Um, and by the way, that's not just fatiguing for kind of general readers and viewers of the media. 
it's also fatiguing for uh, big international A groups. When an emergency springs up, you know, it's not too hard to mobilize funds from big international donors and governments. But the more it drags on, the more it drags on. Even these people who are tasked with funding ways out of humanitarian emergencies, they get tired with it. Not to mention we're in the middle of a pandemic as well. So that's a combination of needs increasing all over the place. But unfortunately, uh, people beginning to look inwards. I mean, without going off on a tangent here, you only have to see that with wranglings over the vaccine between the EU and Britain. The sense that we're all in it together and the pandemic is this great leveler is shown to be complete lie because issues over um, ethno-nationalism start raising up. People look inward. And I think for a place yeah, like yeah. Central African Republic is, is so far away, like we said at the beginning, people haven't even heard of it. They think it's just Congo or whatever, whatever it is, or a region. Um, there is that kind of uh, disinterest. It's also really complicated. You know, you have so many layers of insurgencies. Is it is it religious? Is it ethnic? Is it socioeconomic? Well, it's it's, it's a bit of everything. Uh, so I think the 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 level of fatigue and complication and people's uh, disinterest, um, perhaps even tinged with, you know, a certain amount of racialism. Um, or makes for crises like this tend to go under the carpet. Yeah, certainly I've found in the past, whenever trying to pitch stories in Africa, any African country really, to commissioners and editors at various different um, journalist platforms, like no one's that interested in Africa full stop, let alone a place like CAR. It's really sad. Um, I, you know, I have my own theories, which I won't bother going into, but I don't know. Have you, have you experienced that? You do a lot of reporting in Africa. Yeah, I mean, there it, it's it's a tough one. It, it, it's it's a tough sell um, as a journalist, um, especially because you know I, I write for UK and US outlets, so there's not that kind of um, historical connection between between the UK and Central African Republic, for example. We're more likely to write about Uganda and Kenya, if if at all, just because of imperial history. The problem with CAR as well, it's it's so easy to go there and see only tragedy and see only um, darkness and misery. And trust me, they, they've got more than their fair share of that. And you've got to go to these places and constantly look to reshape the narrative. Otherwise, you are just writing about more war and poverty in Africa, which people have heard enough about. I mean, the fact is in CAR, there are, there are great challenges but on the plus side, there is a very bustling uh, civil society there, you know, very dedicated local groups built from local people from across the religious and ethnic divide who are working on these more grassroots from the ground up peace building measures, which unfortunately for now have been thrown into disarray. But there, there needs to be a greater um, emphasis on that. I mean, so much of peace building in CAR has been this top-down approach, you know, sending in multi-billion dollar UN peacekeeping forces, bringing in other countries, the EU discussing this, uh, regional groups discussing that. Actually, the only people who can bring peace to CAR are Central Africans themselves. 
Um, and there certainly is a very vibrant, dedicated community of kind of local civic groups who are working towards this. This, this is a really diverse country. It's, it's populated by a multitude of different communities. I mean, to the southwest, you've got the Bayaka, known by their more old-fashioned colonial term pygmies, in the Congo Basin, you know, amazing indigenous community who know how to live in harmony with their surroundings. Up to the northeast, you've got nomadic Fulani uh, nomads. Um, you've got Christians, you've got Muslims, you've got animists. It's, it's this it is a very vibrant country. And you hear this narrative of division, but I've been to plenty of villages, especially up in the north, um, you know, supposedly in these lawless areas where communities are divided. Um, went to this one place called Bermingi, and it was full of rebels and full of uh, rebels at checkpoints. Some of them were bastards, <laughs> but some of them were quite friendly as well. And at the same time, you know, these guys are drawn from a Muslim background, but there are plenty of very active churches there as well. So even in the places where you'd expect the most division, there is actually surprising amount of peaceful coexistence. It's those little pockets that have to be uh, that have to be worked on and do provide some glimmers of hope to the country. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of people there who are just sick of the fighting, whether it be from the Muslims, the Christians, the rebels, the whatever, like people just sick of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this rebellion now is pushing a lot of people to breaking points. You know, the first round of civil war, really, these are resilient people, but it, but it really stretched that. And the amount of sexual yeah, violence, yeah. physical violence, uh, psychological trauma is is unimaginable on top of that you've now got this new rebellion you know, this this is a population who have faced decades of war crimes and human rights abuses thousands perished in the most recent war accompanying humanitarian crisis stretching resilience even further this is a country that can't afford yet more devastation from another full-blown conflict um in terms of kind of when we're talking about getting people's attention for this, often people say, what's at stake? You know, why should people take note? I think the fact that people are suffering is, is reason enough in itself. Yeah, same. That, I, that for me is always like, if there's violence and people are being killed, then for me, that's enough. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, we know that, you know, other people do need a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I, I think right now there are, there are two elements to this crisis which point to the bigger picture of why there, there is a lot at stake. The first one is this. It's the fact that car occupies such a marginal position that actually the, the importance of it is, is so great. Let me explain what I mean. The fact that it's so marginal is precisely why it's so crucial to help the country through this latest crisis. So the thinking in kind of recent years, the current kind of policy in the quote unquote international community or the African Union uh, is that we can't let people, we can't let armed groups take power by the gun. We have to build democracy in these countries. So, you know, for the last how many years, five or six years, um, the international community has invested vast sums in Central African Republic to build up its capacity to rebuild state institutions, to 
to rebuild, or not even rebuild, just build democracy in the first place, to try and build up a functional society out of what was essentially a phantom state, a country that only existed on paper. If the international community was now going to let Carr fall into oblivion again and let the armed groups take over and let Francois Bazizé take power by the gun, it would make a complete mockery of the whole policy of the last few years. If Carr falls into disorder, in all the other places where the international community is trying to build up countries, um, it would be a very alarming precedent for those. That's that's the first, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Although I would argue that like that has happened so many times over Africa and it's it's not really done anything. Yeah, for sure. One of the key problems in CAR has been um, impunity, a rampant lack of accountability, that if you're a war criminal, you know, the chances of you ending up in the dock have been until recently basically zero. Those chances now of justice are increasing. And that is the way out for this country, because if you know that you're going to get caught and end up in jail, that can provide a dampener. You know, that's going to reduce the escalation and conflict because people are going to potentially think again, do I really want to go through with this? Why do most people not commit crime in this country? Because they don't want to end up in jail because they know there's going to be accountability, right? So one of the main, um, well, there's been a few positive steps in this direction with national courts. So we've seen national courts getting built up, their capacity getting built up. They've prosecuted some mid-ranking former Selica and former anti-Balica commanders. This is promising, but the massacres that they were involved in wouldn't have been possible without the ideological and financial support of some of the big cheeses who still, um, you know, remain at large. So it's all well and good uh, convicting specific perpetrators of those crimes. But if you're not going after their instigators, the guys who are pulling the strings behind these massacres, it kind of really questions the validity of that justice. But you know, the, these are positive steps. I think the most interesting development in terms of justice and tackling long-standing impunity in the country is a court called the Special Criminal Court. Now, this is a new kind of institution. It's, it's well, in some respects, it's very old. It kind of dates back to the Nuremberg trials. On the other hand, it's got a new kind of flavour. So it's, it's a UN-backed tribunal um, that is going to be going after war criminals. What makes it different is that it's the first such tribunal to be set up in a country that's still at war. So if you look at the uh, the war crimes tribunals that were set up after Bosnia or Cambodia or Lebanon or any number of countries, they, they always took place after the fact or while the war was still continuing, but in a different country. This is the first court to be set up in a country where the war is still on and also where war criminals are going to be judged by their compatriots. So it's this pretty bold attempt to disprove, disprove the old presumption that before you can have, before a society can have order, it must first attempt justice. This is starting with justice and from there order will flow. That's the theory. Now it's had some hiccups along the way uh, and it's by no means perfect, but it is moving to this stage now where it can start process well it can start judging people investigations are happening 
how you actually get a hold of these suspected war criminals who are living in their rebel-held fiefdoms and bringing them in is another question. There's a lot of logistical queries. How you can protect witnesses, how you can uh, protect victims in a country where which doesn't have the capacity to do so, uh, where corruption is rampant. These are all serious challenges. But the hope is that this landmark court can finally bring some accountability to this fractured nation. And by bringing that accountability in, it may be able to ease the conflict by deterring militants from carrying out further violations. Institutions like this do offer some hope. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, if, if, if there's any kind of deterrence, I guess it is one of like, your freedom will be taken, you know? Um, so I guess maybe that, that might start to do something. T tell us about the Russians. They've had uh, like paramilitary, like mercenary groups. Wagner have been seen there. What's going on with them? Yeah, that's right. So when we're talking about kind of what's at stake here, um, this is kind of the second thing. You know, Russia's injection into this area suddenly not so much raises the stakes, but gives it an international flavour and makes it very interesting. You know, for years, this was kind of France's uh, backyard. You know, France enjoyed a huge amount of political and military influence in the country. The country has a love-hate relationship with its former colonial master, and that's something that Russia's been capitalising on. Yeah, just for a bit of context, this is not the first time that Moscow's had dealings in Africa. During the Soviet era, um, the Kremlin's influence on the continent was at its peak. This was a time when Russia was jostling with other Western and European powers for dominance, you know, posting KGB agents there or sending weapons to communist insurgents, Cold War proxy conflicts taking place. Just look at Angola, right? That's one of the most infamous ones. When the USSR collapsed in the early 90s, this triggered a decline in influence. Um, and all the ensuing economic chaos in the 1990s forced Russia to wind down its overseas activities. That's changed over the last few years. You know, the country has rebounded, even though its economy isn't great. What's, what's the figure? It's, you know, it's, a, it's a huge oil economy, but it's also not much bigger than Italy's. Um, so the problem is what Russia faces now, it has fewer resources than it did during the Soviet era. And it also doesn't have an ideology that it can market under the guise of communism. So the plan is it needs to inject itself into vacuums of Western power. And it also needs to do it on the cheap role in Central African Republic. So in 2018, Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, and Tuadera, Car's president, they met in the Black Sea resort of Sochi. And despite a UN arms embargo on car, Moscow successfully lobbied for permission to donate weapons and ammo to Car's really weakened military, almost weakened to the point of non-existence. Now, this initial arsenal amounted to thousands of assault rifles, of handguns, rocket launchers, machine guns, you know, a pretty chunky passage, uh, package, not enough to completely overturn the security situation in the government's favour, but a good start. And alongside that, 175 quote-unquote military instructors uh, were sent in there to train cars armed forces. Loads of evidence have emerged that this is part of the, the Wagner mercenary group who've been dispatched all over the place, whether eastern Ukraine or Syria or Libya, where they've got a presence 
uh, in Central African Republic, based, by the way, at Barengo Palace, where Bacasa, megalomaniac and <laughs> alleged cannibal used to live. So this initial arms dona donation has since expanded into frontline patrols, uh, nationwide convoys, uh, backroom deals to get access to uh, the gold mines, the gem mines, uh, meetings with rebels. Um, to Adira, the president, has um, a presidential guard of these uh, Russian fighters. And his uh, presidential security advisor is, is a former Russian spook. Now, Russia says, hey, this is fair enough. I'm just responding to a legitimate request for security assistance from the government. And you speak to a lot of central, you speak to a lot of educated Central Africans, and they're, you know, my, my fixer there, he was all for this. He's, he's seen his country brutalized at the hands of militant armed groups, and now they're getting helped out by Russia. You know, fair enough. You, you, you're going to accept that. Um, you know, obviously the question is, Russia, Putin's Russia certainly doesn't really do humanitarian operations, so it's hard to see why this would be. The, the benefit from Moscow from CAR is that Russia's economy is in long-term decline, so it needs to seek political influence uh, and bolster, um, bolster its arms markets. One of the biggest constituents for Putin's regime is the industrial military complex. Now, this has received a boost in Syria, where Russia helped um, turn the tide in Assad's favour. The hope is now that by flooding Kars armed forces with loads of weapons and loads of military know-how and hardware, and then they can turn the tide against the rebels, Central African Republic can then become a weapons showroom um, to other African countries in the region and sell more weapons. So it has that economic interest there too. So what are they actually doing other than basically in a very fucked up way using the CAR as their kind of training ground? What what are they ostensibly doing? Like what is Wagner saying they're doing there in the CAR? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just what they're kind of saying they're doing. They've kind of been filmed plenty of times that they... They've been training up CARS armed forces, which essentially collapsed during 2013's descent into civil war. Um, the EU has had a training mission there for years. Um, you now have this pretty tense situation where the Russians have come in there and started training up CARS armed forces as well. Um, the EU's military training mission has a very active Twitter feed where they're constantly promoting how many people they've trained, um, the successes of it. Um, the Russians have been pushing that too. Um, I believe there is some communication between them, but really the, these, these are separate military training missions. So it's, it's a way of gaining influence um, in a part of the continent that is drawing away from its traditional European partners. There's that economic interest of acting as a showroom for its very important arms industry. Uh, and then there's kind of little side benefits that, you know, the Russian fighters who are sent in there, they can kind of get a little scheme going on with the various mining activities there, the gold and the gems, that provides some incentive at, at a lower level. What is the main um, thing there? Like, what's the main um, precious metal there or the main, like, export? Is it oil? Is it gold? What is it? Yeah, the main, the main gems are diamonds and gold. Um, it's been under embargo for years, so technically diamonds from 
conflict afflict conflict affected parts of the country aren't allowed to be shipped out. Of course they do. There's the thriving black market. And so so many of the um the diamond mines um are run by these armed groups uh who then finance their activities by getting them out there um you know often going through Dubai, UAE and then finding their way onto um European markets through Belgium. So yeah, it's mainly gold and diamonds. Um there is some uranium in kind of like the remote eastern regions but any attempts to kind of actually mine that profitably haven't worked bit of oil up in the north but again that hasn't been tapped but you know this this is a country rich in resources and, and the same line you hear again and again is car the poorest country in the world despite being so rich in natural resources that's actually the wrong way of looking at it the reason car is so poor is because it is cursed by having all these resources, which has fueled so much fighting and instability to get them. Yeah, it's like saying, "Oh, that they're poor because their house got robbed." It's like that's what's happening. It's not you want they weren't just suddenly poor, right? They've got the stuff there, but it's been taken. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you have a weak state, a corrupt central government, um, intensive exclusion and marginalization of minority groups, and then into that you throw all these highly valuable sought-after resources, you know, a country's just not going to get rich overnight from that. It's going to actually serve to fuel further conflict, if not manage well. Yeah. Um, Jack, you're, you're possibly planning to go back there, potentially. What, what are you looking to do there? What is it you want to do? Uh, I've been really shocked over the last few weeks by how little attention has been focused to this. Um, huge numbers of people are suffering there. Like, we, like we're seeing already, 200,000 people have been forced from their homes. This is an emergency that's going to get worse and worse as the military escalation continues. And by the look of it, the government isn't talking about reconciliation and dialogue. It's talking about a military solution to this crisis, of which there is none. There is not a military solution to this. The solution is long-term investment, inclusion of marginalised groups. That's the way you're going to erode support for the rebels. Um, it's not even about what one of the main tactics for diffusing insurgencies has been this thing called DDR, which stands for disarmament, demobilization and reintegration, i.e. take the guns away from the rebels, break up their armed groups and then reintegrate them into society by giving them jobs. On paper, that sounds great, right? What's wrong with that? It kind of it sounds really logical. The perverse outcome of that is, is that you essentially, quote unquote, reward militants for taking up arms, while people who haven't taken up arms are left without the uh, the payoffs that are given to these militants. So a much more holistic approach needs to be taken where you're not just giving these things to rebels, but you're lifting up the whole community. Anyway, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but, but the point is, is that the civilian population is suffering immensely. There's barely any media attention on this. I'm grateful for the editors who've let me talk about it, but there there needs to be much, much more. Um, and if I do get back there, um, I'll be hoping to to raise further awareness of this crisis. Um, whether or not that would do much, but it is is to be seen. But right now, the fact that this is unfolding in practical silence is is pretty depressing. And um, hopefully, 
uh, more people can find out what is going on in the heart of the continent. Yeah, man, definitely. Um, and one way I think people can do that is if they follow your work. You've been covering it a lot. Certainly most of what I've learned about the conflict has been reading what you've been putting out. Um, maybe just let people know where they can find your work on social media, your website, all of that. Yeah, thank, thanks for the offer of that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm tweeting a lot about this uh, on Twitter, at Jack Losh, uh, J-A-C-K-L-O-S-H. And it's the same on my Instagram as well, um, just a full stop between Jack and Losh. Um, yeah, putting out as much information as possible, posting pictures. I must stress, I'm not in the country right now, and there's a pretty hardcore group of uh, French freelance journalists out there who've been kind of covering this intensely i tend to dip in and out of the country and do other jobs on the side as well you know there are people inside the country who are covering this as well who are getting out crucial much needed information about the reality on the ground right now um so yeah there's there's sources out there you just gotta look all right jack thank you very much mate appreciate that nice one thank you time jake That was Jack Losh speaking about the reignited war in the Central African Republic and how underreported it all is. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us as always on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popular front. You get bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the community discord, documentaries go up there first. There's all sorts there. You will see a lot. Patreon.com slash popular front if you don't like patreon try us at popularfront.co slash support the more money we get the more stuff we make for popular front thank you very much to our sponsors this episode they are oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 also sponsoring this episode is Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grindcore House. Uh, we're also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get your prints at propagandopolis.com. That is P-R-O-P-A-G-A-D-O-P-O-L-I-S.com. Use the promotion code POPULARFRONT10 to get 10% off your prints. Go to youtube.com slash popularfront or just search popularfront uh, in the search bar on YouTube. I think we have enough sway and enough subscribers there now that we should be like the first people coming up when you search it. I think that's right. But anyway, like I said, if you can't find it, youtube.com slash popularfront. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash popular.front. On Twitter, it's uh, at popularfrontco, same as the website, www.popularfront.co. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me or see what I'm doing, uh, all social medias are at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, also known as Son of Old. Listen to Sam's music at samblackpf.com. Thank you very much to the high tier Patreons. Without you lot, none of this would be possible. 
Thank you very much to MJ, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, C O'Donnell, Adam H, Ryan Barbadillo, Damian Boyd, Larson8669, Badnads, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Taylor Kidd, Zach Picard, Todd Cravens, Will Anderson, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Colley, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitzmadrid, Joe Watt, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, The French Report, hang on, wait, what? The French Report from Media, I don't even, I can't read it, man, it's too long. I don't know, The French Report from Media Par something. Uh, it's just too long, man, you might have to shorten your name on that. Um, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, George Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Noise, Nawais, I think, wait, so he did tell me how to say that, but he didn't make much sense. Nawais, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, <clears throat> Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, uh, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Sarushay Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kobarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, Moritz Zumwal, and Kay Hardy Roberts. Thank you all very much. Again, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Cheers.